Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Oliver Franklin Wallace, who is the assistant editor at British Wired. Uh, He also is a writer, editor and a passionate advocate for long-form journalism. So I did the interview with uh, Oliver, who's been a long-time supporter of the show, in the Wired podcast cupboard, which is uh, exactly as glamorous as it sounds. But it was really fascinating. Uh, he talked about his, his own background and his entry into journalism, his current role at the magazine, which involves both commissioning a lot of their big, long-form pieces and writing them as well. And as usual, uh, we delved into the financial nitty-gritty of how much they pay and the mechanics of how to pitch him and and what's uh, good to do and also what's not so good to do. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll probably be rather terrified of pitching to him. He is known for for outing bad bad pitching technique. So it's um, nice to hear him uh, talk about the things that he he does like in a pitch. Uh, Anyway, I hope you enjoy um, the episode and we'll see you on the other side. I'm here at Vogue House in London. Is this Vogue House or an annex is, of Vogue House? Not, yeah, it's 13 Hanover Square. Opposite just Vogue a, House. Yeah, just wired as fine. An <laughs> undisclosed location in central London with Ollie Franklin Wallace, uh, who is a longtime friend of the podcast. And also, Ollie, what's your, what's your full official title? I am commissioning editor at Wired. At the British edition of, of Wired. Yeah, Wired UK, that's right. So could you first of all uh, tell me a little bit about your, your um, rise to power, as it were, your... <laughs> Your, your way into journalism and how you got to where you are now? Um, yeah, so I got into journalism almost by accident, really. Um, I went to Cardiff University, which um, journalists in the UK will know has a great journalism school. I did not go to that journalism school. Uh, I did English literature. But through um, sheer happenstance, I got involved in probably my second year with Guy Reith, which is Wales for Free Word, which is the student newspaper there. How do you spell that? Welsh, uh, Welsh spellings, obviously. G A I R R H Y double D, I believe, from memory. Standard. God, if I've got that wrong, I'll have a lot of angry tweets from Welsh. <laughs> but um, so I got involved with that in my second year. Um, prior to that, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Really, I thought I'm you know, advertising something creative, um, and then you know, kind of discovered reporting, and I kind of took on a bunch of responsibilities. I was editing, co-editing the um, opinion pages, and I had a column. And over time, I started doing features for the in-house magazine. I launched my own magazine. I kind of uh, stopped really going to university and basically spent all of my time in the Students' Union doing the newspaper with a kind of core group there. Yeah, familiar story of, for a lot of yeah, people, I think. Yeah, I think, I think it's kind of a similar a similar path to a lot of people in the UK. And um, I then very quickly realised that I was going to leave university with very few job prospects and very little money. And... Uh, when did you graduate? I graduated in oh, uh, 2010, I think. Okay. Um, and I realised that you know I needed to get a job, so I did what you did back then and what you t- still do now. And I, you know, I sat down and I wrote letters to pretty much every newspaper and magazine in the country, saying, "Please, will you let me intern for you for free?" And then I spent, uh, <laughs> rather than actually going to my lectures in final year, I spent most of the time uh, interning my way around the uh, London journalism circuit. At various different newspapers and magazines. So you just sort of took time out from university to do that. Yeah, I um, I got in a bit of trouble with my uh, university lecturers, but once they kind of saw the work that I was doing and I kind of explained myself, uh, they were actually surprisingly okay with it. And the thing is about English literature is that it's most mostly reading, right? So mm. you can catch up on the the, the coursework very easily. Thankfully, I managed to pass my my, my degree at the same time. Um, but the, the the great advantage of that is I kind of left university with a bunch of um, 
you know, big newspaper magazines. I'd done the Sunday Times, I'd done Men's Health, I'd done GQ, um, and various others. And did you have so a sense it, like a, a fairly robust CV? Did you have a sense you wanted to go in a magazine direction? Oh yeah, stage? pretty pretty early on. Um, I've always um, quite maybe unfashionably had a love for men's magazines, particularly American men's magazines. When I kind of discovered that. Where had you um, discovered that? I mean, I think a lot of British people doing doing this kind of magazine work will have had some kind of moment where they've had that exposure to the American thing, whether through studying there or someone literally slapping a copy of The New Yorker in front of them. Yeah, I mean, it's, to be honest, it's hard for me to remember. I, I think some of the first memories I have of like really wanting to do long form and do it well was um, reading Alex Bilmez, who is now the editor of UK Esquire, but then was, I think, features editor or... or Who's at GQ, right? at, at GQ, and was doing these kind of really ambitious literary profiles of celebrities um, and, and other things. You know, he was writing about authors and he was doing other bits and pieces. But um, he wrote in this like beautiful, um, stylistic way. He, you know, he included scenes. He had all of the tropes of of, of, of proper proper narrative nonfiction, and um, I kind of was amazed that you could do that in you know coming from a world of newspapers. Mm. And um, when I ended up, I ended up applying for some work experience at GQ. And on my first or second day, I sent an email to Alex and I said, oh, "Can I, you know, take you for lunch?" And he said, "Don't be silly, you're in work experience. I'll take you for lunch." And I just said to him, "You know, how do I get to do this?" And I remember he he told me to go out and buy a book which he was reading at the time, which was *The Forever War* by Dexter Filkins, the New York staff writer, New Yorker staff writer. Um, and I think that basically was like my introductory drug and I from there just started kind of binging and discovered the New Yorker and all of its uh, all of its delights and, and it kind of really s- snowballed from there really and basically I kept hanging around GQ and places like that until I did a six month internship which then led to a job and, and were you I've able to make this since, really. well, obviously as you know we try and talk as frankly as possible about money on the podcast were you able to kind of were you getting paid from from the beginning of that or how did um, it fit together from the very start, so the internships at Conning Nast, the editorial six months internships were paid minimum wage. I think they still are. Um, I spent a lot of time at university kipping on the sofas of friends who are here at London universities um, and kind of mooching off the uh, the, the kindness of friends, uh, as it were. Um, I also did a bit of news um, newspaper work for the likes of the Evening Standard. So I'd done some work experience for them on the features desk and they threw me a few assignments. Um, and then I kind of basically pieced together a freelance living through, I would kind of go to work during the day and then I would go and do like the weekend and night shift at the Sunday Times doing web, up, web uploading and some days in the week I did web shifts uploading at the um, at the Evening Standard. So it was like pulling breaking news from the news wires and putting them on the Evening Standard website. And back in those days, web, you know, comparatively uh, com- compared to now, there was a de- actually a decent amount of money for day rates for freelancers to do that kind of work. So I was able to kind of somehow piece together a living until I ended up getting a, a staff job at, at GQ. And what were you doing at GQ then? So my initial role at GQ, I was online features assistant, which was um, all of the aspects of GQ which are not fashion. You you know you can look, see me here. The the, the listeners can't uh, can't see me, but uh, fashion is. Ollie is, is currently wearing a, a knee length raccoon coat. <laughs> Um, I am six foot eight, and so not sample size. Uh, Much of the fashion world is is off limits to me. Um, But, you know, GQ also writes about 
arts and culture and it has a big literary history and it writes about politics and so it's all of those kind of things that I was getting involved with and it's a great place to to learn to to do that kind of to do that kind of writing you know they still have um, a reputation rightly so as being one of the few publications in the UK along with Wired and some of the other Conde Nast titles and some others which I'm sure that we'll talk about who really value long-form journalism and they really you know invest in great writing and great photography and they're invested in making a really high quality product and that's that's where I wanted to be. And when did you move across to Wired? Oh, um, probably 2014, I think. And what was your initial role at the magazine? At Wired? Um, So uh, when I joined Wired, I was editing the play section, which is our culture section. So it covers film, TV, books, and the intersection thereof of technology and science. So it's your regular film TV pages of, you know, of, of any magazine, but with a little bit of a, of a wired twist. And then when did you um, gain your current position doing the doing the big pieces? Um, not very long ago. I mean, I've been writing long features since I arrived at Wired. Um, wired is, um, has been particularly good at letting staffers grow and kind of learn the ropes of this kind of writing in-house. And we have some absolutely phenomenal long-form writers who are either still here or have, have kind of learned the craft here and then gone elsewhere to the places like the FT and the Telegraph and the Sky and various other different places. Um, so I had been writing long-form features on a regular basis and then from about Christmas time, so it's not been very long that I've that I've been doing um, the well editing full-time, which I share with Joao Medeiros, who's our other uh, is our senior convention editor. Um, and that role we have kind of five or six features every issue the word length tends to be somewhere in the region of three to five thousand words depending on the topic um and that could vary i mean a lot of people have a perception of wired as like really tech heavy and it's just about facebook or something you know or or they think that we're a gadget magazine like t3 or stuff and all we do is review iphones and that's not it at all you know wired i always describe people um wired as like an ideas magazine so this issue we have a piece about um, gender equality in the workplace, the cover story by Amelia Tate, which is about Bumble. We have some reporting from Mosul from John Beck. Um, we have some pieces about, we have a crime story about Sue Black and um, forensics. So there's a whole host of different subjects that Wired covers, so it's not just kind of science and tech. And with your role, how do you split the, the editing and the writing, and the, the time division for that? Is there a particular number of pieces that you're meant to write a year or...? With great difficulty, um, I'm supposed to write. I, I don't have. Should we said that Ollie also has a? How, how old is your your baby? My my daughter is uh, eight weeks old. So he's he's burning the candle literally yeah. at both ends. Yeah, um, that's uh, it's an adventure. Um, so I uh, I think I don't have a contractual obligation, but my aim is to do kind of four or five stories a year. We have ten newsstand issues of of the main um, magazine, and then we have a kind of year ahead. Um, issue which comes out in the, the, the end of the year around Christmas time, you know, like the, the same way that the Economist does, um, called the Wild World in well, next year will be Wild World in 2018. Um, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, I, I think a really there's a really interesting conversation to be had about how many of these things you can do in a year, and I I often think it's maybe about seven um, would be a pretty. You, you're would, prolific, so like you you know this better than me. What's the, I think you can do seven, yeah, okay. in a year if you're not doing other stuff. I think, and I and I think that the you need about four on the go at any one time. Mm. Um, so that one, you're sort of scoping, one, you're pitching, one, you're reporting, 
when you're writing. And that, particularly if you're freelance, that keeps the, the throughput of it. But I think I've had conversations with people who've been you know, in job discussions and so forth who think, like, I can do 15. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that's possible, you know. Um, but, it, but it is a... But certainly that's you know, impressive to do four on top of a, a big editing job as well. Well, I, so it's you know I'm I'm kind of interested to hear your view on this because I always think freelancers have a different perception of it and and, and being on staff affords you certain time constraints and also certain luxuries. You mm. know, I can spend many many weeks or months on a story, knowing that I don't need to then chase it for a deadline or for a bill because I'm setting my own deadlines, which yeah. is pretty uh, which is a bit of a luxury. But you know, I I, I you know I was, I was listening to Ed Caesar, um, who's a, a friend and you know a, a big inspiration of mine. Um, he was on the Longform podcast and he talked about his time when he worked on staff at The Independent. And he it just churned of, these things out. I've right? listened to that. Yeah. And I think Sam Knight, who everyone knows for mm. his work for The New Yorker and The Guardian Long Read, had a similar kind of, if you go back and look for his, his work at the FT magazine and, and various other places, you know, I, I think that the, um, the career path for some of these long-form writers in the UK you know, you can use that experience of churning the shorter features. Patrick Kingsley, for example, at the New York Times mm. um, was a staff writer at G2 and now does some absolutely beautiful writing, both at book length um, and, at, yeah. and at decent length for, for previously The Guardian and The New York Times. So um, I think it's a great training ground. It's a proving ground to be on staff somewhere. And there, it's, it's a shame that there are so few roles where you can kind of get that experience, mm. really. What was your the first long-form feature that you wrote? I mean, this is always an interesting question. I mean, for me, it was... Um, a piece that I did when I was at Columbia in the States about um, voter registration among African Americans in, in the US for the New mm. Statesman. And that was kind of leveraged in that classic way of, of being in an interesting place, an mm. interesting time and so forth. And there's always this this kind of catch-22 situation I think people encounter where they want to do the work, but they haven't got any clips sure. indicating they can. What was the, the way you first did it? Um, so professionally, the first piece, which I would kind of classify as long form, which was, you know, 3,000 words or up, um, was a piece that I wrote about the Silk Road, the online drugs marketplace for GQ, um, after I'd been there for 18 months for a couple of years, um, which was, I mean, it was a great place to get a foot on the ladder and that GQ would let me do that and work with me on the story. Um, it was also an interesting um, way in for me because it was, you know, it was dealing with an American crime story. You know, a lot of the narrative was me reaching out to American crime agencies um, I did actually manage to have an, an instant messaging exchange with the Dread Private Roberts, who we now know is Russell really? Brickton has been imprisoned, and you know Nick. Um, There's a big book. Nick Bilton wrote yeah. that great book, um, which I unfortunately haven't got around to finishing yet, but but is excellent. Um, so I mean that was a great uh, first kind of assignment to learn some of the ropes of these things because you're you're learning about crime reporting, and it's I mean a, a lot of the problems that we face at Wired when you're dealing with stories around technology. Uh, is that almost all of the narrative takes place it's like a person looking at a computer mm. how do you make that interesting yeah and so to kind of take some of those issues on early on um was i think a great kind of lesson for coming here ultimately and, and doing the kind of work that we do and dealing with some of those issues and you you touched on this earlier but how would you summarize what wired's offering is as as a magazine oh as a magazine um it's probably difficult uh, different to what i would say you know, to what I talk to writers when I say, you know, when we're talking about pitching, hmm. I would say um, a wired story. So, so an, e an easy and somewhat reductive. So don't kind of take this as, as wired in its totality. But one way I is one easy way to kind of get into writers heads what a wired story would be at length is um, a Guardian or a newspaper story is 
Oh, phone going off. Mortifyingly, my phone has gone off. I'll just turn it off. Um, okay. You. The, uh, the wired podcast... <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the electronic countermeasures in the wired podcast cupboard. It is, you know yeah. what, it, it is one of those things as a technology magazine, whenever we try and do anything live, the, the tech always breaks. It's the curse of wired. Um, but no, so so the the, the newspaper story um, or the Guardian story, uh, you know, for me being oversimplifying is look at this bad thing that's happening. And the wired twist on that exact same story is look at this bad thing that's happening and here's someone trying to fix it or here's an idea trying to fix it. So if you're writing about climate change, it's not just look at this island that's kind of being sunk by flooding or this look at the acidification of the reefs. It's here's a scientist who's got a radical proposal to do X. Um, it's probably a little bit of a simplistic way, but it's but Wired has always kind of had a history of being quite visionary and future facing and trying to be not necessarily positive, but looking for those kind of radical ideas around science and technology and how it can solve real world problems. So that's one way that I would describe it to freelancers when they're saying, okay, what kind of stories are you looking for? I'm saying, you know, don't necessarily pitch me that the same story that you would pitch the you know the Guardian or Newsweek or one of these these news periodicals. Have a think about how you move that story on, because we've always got to be the first people to the next big thing. And how does the UK edition compare to the the US, both in terms of its kind of package and and scale and number of people working here and so forth? We are much smaller, but our ambitions are the same size. Okay. Um, the US team, who we have a very cordial relationship with, but we are separate entities. Uh, we really share the. Um, you share some editorial material? Yeah, right? so um, we normally pick up one feature and maybe a couple of front of book things um, per issue for, to be to be honest, it's, it's mostly for budgetary reasons. Um, but that actually has not always been the case in, in recent years because the editorial directions of the magazine, the editorial tones um, have diverged slightly. They're a little bit more pop culture and we have kind of a bit more of an economist or a business week style um editorial voice where we're more focused on on business and and those kind of um you know that that kind of audience really the economist kind of audience as opposed to the glossy lifestyle magazine audience um so that's gone down a bit but uh, we have a good relationship with them um but other than that that's kind of it really they they have i think 50 editorial staff to our dozen or so and how does how does circulation compare as well uh that i wouldn't want to say without the numbers in front of me right okay but it's you know it's f- the same as any other title. It, it's substantially smaller in the UK, but our our UK um, circulation is is very healthy and staying stable. And, and the websites are separate for America and yeah. for, That's for the right. UK. Yeah. yeah, in the same way that British GQ and British Vogue um, are, are, are different. They're, they're they're entirely separate editorial brands. Sure. And and moving from that specific difference between the American and British editions, how do you see? Uh, we talked about this quite a lot um, at other times. British. You know, feature writing compared to that American tradition, or you know, these different environments that are happening. Well, you and I know from our many chats at your events, um, and from uh, the Twitter account and, and Medium account that I run with a few colleagues called the Q, which is you know focused on long form, particularly British long form. I've felt pretty strongly um, for a long time that, that the, there is a tradition of, of long form in the UK, but it is admittedly much smaller and has been undergoing. Um, severe budgetary constraints and to be honest a a lack of outlets who are still able to do this kind of journalism in the UK. It's interesting so you think that there was what a sort of golden age or a 
No, not necessarily, but I certainly have seen. I mean, even within the, eight, the last eighteen months, the the pressures are increasing on on um, that kind of journalism. It always kind of frustrates me to see magazines which I consider, you know, in, uh, I have always held in high esteem, cutting their word rates or cutting their this paginations. Uh, and it seems because I think I think there's a slightly small-minded mentality in some um, parts of like UK journalism, or that 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 long-form writing is almost kind of some kind of vanity project for the person, you know, and therefore it should be therefore it's the first to go. When actually, you know, certainly anecdotally, and from what we've seen also in in how from web performance and things like that, people buy magazines for the features. They don't hmm. buy them for the little, you know, unless you're dealing with private eye or, or one of these things that's that's dealing primarily with voice for big ambitious magazines that you're reading for entertainment you read them for the big crime stories for the big celebrity profiles and not really the front front of book pieces so um it does seem a little bit short-sighted as everyone pivots to video that long form seems to be the first to go um you know even some of the places that have sprung up to do um long form you know new media websites that, that kind of had had a a brief dalliance with trying to do it at length they seem to have not followed through in the same way or maybe that's just my perception i don't know but certainly i'm i know that in the uk there are far far fewer there's probably a handful maybe a dozen places trying to do this kind of work with the depth of ambition and the depth of scope that we try and do here and what about with the the way that british writers write i mean we we talked beforehand about the kind of British newspaper, like what is it, sitting over the coffee lead or something like you're, that? You're trying to rile me up now, aren't you? This is, this is, <laughs> these were said in private, Simon. Um, I, I, I am kind of, I have a, a, a Twitter personality which is kind of occasionally grumpily moaning about kind of uh, British writing cliches. But yeah, I, I am, I am very strongly averse, and there are uh, some, you know, I, I share this, I think, with a lot of features writers in the UK who I, who I would say are operating on that. I don't like to use the American standard because I think it's kind of a false um, comparison to, to to hold up. But um, the, the the thing with the with the hotel lunches, you know, you read you read some of these, you know, free weeklies and some of the weekend you know, like newspaper weekend supplements, which I know are are constrained in terms of pagination and budgets. But they all, you know, you know, you know the story that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Could you X, just explain to our X, listeners? It's it's the, you know. Starlet X sachets into the Soho Hotel, looking disarmingly down to earth in a X designer dress, and the lead takes place over a lunch, and mm. it's kind of, um, I guess the way that I would describe it is they write profiles about that interaction or conversation rather than about that person. You know, if you read a Tad Friend profile in the New Yorker, they a profile is or a Taffy Bread Asarachna story in GQ or something like that. Um, a great celebrity profile is not about just an interaction with that person. It's about what that person means and the wider culture. About it's about their ambitions and their life story. And also, it's much not more just anecdotal lead. Here's a little bit of, bit of bio. Here's three kind of questions that I need to ask them for the news cycle. Hit like ticket. It's, like, it's going through a checklist. I've got to ask them about the movie. I've got to ask them about the love life. I've got to ask them about this. And then you kind of sign off, and it's just slightly depressing to see so many of those stories read the same and once you've seen it you can't unsee it it's everywhere yeah and, and also much more simply it's just that you know a profile involves talking to more than the subject right talking to other people about the subject i think that's that simple lift mm. you know can is rare to see a lot of it i think is about craft as well i mean 
The uh, it always frustrates me to see. I remember not too long ago, Michael Pataniti, who's a staff writer for the American edition of GQ, uh, a multi-award winning non-fiction writer, has written several books, um, who I hold in incredibly high esteem. Um, wrote an interview with Brad Pitt for the American edition of GQ Style, and it got a little bit of. It was in a QA like sections of it were in a Q and A format, and there was a Marina Hyde column in the Guardian where she kind of mocked him, asking a question like, "What do you dream about?" And for me, like I think there's an earnestness to some of that American profile writing where they genuinely want to know what Brad Pitt yeah. dreams about. And unless you ask those questions and you only ask them the stuff that's you know about their latest film, oh, so what's it like working with X? Then you're not going to be able to move something to kind of transcend the boundaries of the mundane and the everyday kind of jobbing profile into something a little bit more special and a little bit more, um, I don't know, like I, I guess it's an art form. Yeah, and, and there is there is an argument I've heard that the, the greatest strength and the greatest weakness of British journalism is its refusal to take itself seriously, which I think if you know that because because and that's a sort of wider British failing in some ways that the worst thing you could do is actually care about your work. Yeah, I, th- there's a, a kind of a, a low level sense of of either irony or at times self self deprecation that that's kind of slightly irritating at times. Um, but you know, I think I think hopefully that's changing. You know, you see the work that the likes of Jonathan Chainin and his team at the Guardian Long Read are doing. Um, you know, you had um, Jonathan from 1843 on, um, and there are other publications here in the UK who are trying to do this. You know, Helen Lewis and and Co at the New Statesman are doing some absolutely staggeringly great work at times. Um, you know, Alice at the FT weekend. Yeah, we had her on the show. You know, yeah. yeah, so like, I, I do think there are people doing this incredibly well in the UK, and I, I, I hate to kind of do down the industry as a whole because I actually think that the number of people doing it badly are, are quite a small amount, and the number, mm. I, I, and this is why we started the queue is to really shine a light on the people who are doing it well and the fact that it can be done well. And also, there's a secondary thing which I feel, which is by fetishizing American journalism, you end up kind of just emulating it or copying it in some kind of empty way um, and there's a great literary tradition in, in British non-fiction writing you know yeah. it goes back beyond Orwell well um, the, the essay is a well it's a French invention perhaps in some ways but you know rather to Hazlitt and or, but yeah, the, es- the essay is different the essay is not narrative yeah I had a conversation about this with John Jeremiah Sullivan once when he was in the UK and um, you know he was we were talking about this kind of Weird disconnect between Brit- the British like literary nonfiction history and and the current state of magazines, and he was like, "Well, I don't understand it because you you basically invented the form, and arguably that comes from more of an essay tradition." You're right, um, but the idea that it's an American invention is, I think, a fairly recent phenomenon, um, and I think in terms of voice, you know, like I I, I um, was recently introduced. Um, to the works of, do you know a writer, a British writer called Robert McFarlane? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, Who wrote Matters of the Mind. And- he, yes, he's an absolutely wonderful naturalist and writer. Um, and th- you see this in the success of, of books like Atus for Hawk, and something that I've been grappling with is that those books are both incredibly beautiful narrative nonfiction, and th- there's, some es- there's, there's some elements of essay in them, but they have a kind of Britishness of tone and voice mm. that's quite interesting to me to kind of dissect. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Well, recently, they're, they're, they're mem- there's a lot of memoir in, in yeah. both H.S. for Hawk and in McFarlane. Yeah, and it's interesting that the, the use of language and the use of citation and a lot of it kind of leans on literary tradition. A lot of them are talking about old British authors and, and, and their, their works. But it's something yeah, who that is it, I'm who thinking is it that, about. Yeah, who is it in H.S. for Hawk? Who's she talking about? Um, uh, the guy who wrote The Peregrine. Yeah. 
It escapes me. I can't remember yeah. him either. It's uh, a great book. The once and the once and future king. Yeah, that's right. Well, right. Yeah, we'll um, we'll come back. We'll, to you. we'll come back. Put to it in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think on on the that, that transatlantic thing, it's also hard to look at full without talking or looking about the financial aspect of it. And mm-hmm. again, given our always take notes remit to ask the difficult questions, um, are you able to discuss what what kind of rates you pay for features writing? Our standard starting rate for features is thirty five p words, okay. and the standing and the starting word length is is around. Um, 4,000 words, 3,500, okay. 4,000 words. Um, sometimes that goes higher, sometimes it goes lower. Um, that does change depending on the writer. Um, and, you know, I, I would suggest to writers that if they, you know, if they really value a story and they want to negotiate, then they're very welcome to. Hmm. Um, but, you know, magazine budgets are not maybe what they are in America and, yeah. and, and what they were, were once. What I would say in our defence, um, as it were, is first of all, you won't find a huge number of word rates in the UK higher than that. Mm. And the second thing I would say is that we still have budget for travel, and in some cases, you know, if you want to go to, you know, I mentioned this month we have a story from Mosul, and a couple of months we have a story that's reported from Peru. You know, we have we do send writers all over the world to do some pretty ambitious reporting, and we pay for fixes, and yeah. we do that as you know, we do cover those kind of those kind of costs, which while some other outlets may pay you a slightly better word rate, it's different reporting from your desk sure yeah and again this is um you know far from unique to the situation here at wired um but rates in general that british magazines pay are substantially lower than than in america where certainly the the top echelon of the market two dollars a word is is pretty standard um but as as you've said ollie there are these just structural realities about scales of budget and scales of um of resources that are there and can we can we talk about a couple of the, the pieces that we were discussing over emails? So, firstly, sure. a couple of the ones that you've written yourself. Um, firstly, the the Hyperloop story, which I thought was <laughs> was fascinating, but seemed to be a really interesting example. And we'll put this in the show notes. But of a piece that maybe took a different direction as you were reporting it than you thought. Oh yeah, totally. Um, so, for people who don't know what the Hyperloop is on that story, the Hyperloop is an idea proposed by Elon Musk. Um, who's the founder and CEO of, of Tesla and SpaceX and is widely known as kind of the, the, the heir to Steve Jobs in tech circles. Every time he says anything, everyone kind of falls over. Um, he proposed this idea for a super fast transportation network. It's kind of like the next iteration of the train, only it goes like 750 miles an hour in a vac- in like pods in a vacuum that would be on stilts and things. It's kind of this sci-fi vision of the future. Um, but yeah, that story ended uh, started. Yeah, what was the original as, conception? It started as a fairly straightforward profile of these people who were trying to build it. You know, Elon Musk has this crazy idea, so he put out this white paper envisioning this is how this thing would work. We've done the, we've run the numbers. We think this is feasible, but I don't have time to do it. So here it is, world. Here's my vision. Someone go and build. He open sourced it, right? It was he crazy. exactly right. So um, so a bunch of people, some with lots of money and um, experience. Um, and some with none at all started rushing to form companies and try and actually make this thing happen. And that in itself was kind of a fascinating idea to me because you kind of got this mixture of, you know, this guy says go and suddenly people are willing to drop all their livelihoods to make this this thing happen. Um, and then you have all of the things about, you know, well, our UK, for example, our trains are kind of crumbling under mm-hmm. the weight of um, too many people and not enough resources and stuff. So, so it started, started out fairly straightforward. Um, and then very quickly... Then all hell broke loose, basically. Very quickly all broke, broke loose. Well, there's, there's two things that happened. One is the day that I was in LA reporting on one of the companies, um, the evening 
or so I, I went uh, to to do to kind of tour their offices and you know, meet some of the, the characters at Heart of the Story, did some observational reporting. And the very same day, the former co-founder of that company filed a massive lawsuit against the other co-founders, alleging that they had threatened him, uh, that they'd basically threatened him with death threats and various bits of financial impropriety. Um, it was one of those things where you cannot believe your luck. Hmm. Here was all of, you know, you're out there thinking, oh, this is a fairly straightforward tech piece. And the piece is greenlit, the piece is commissioned as a big feature oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. at that stage. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably wouldn't have been as big as, hmm. as it was. Um, so there was so there was that going on. Um, and the piece, you know, goes into the to what ended up happening with this with this lawsuit. Um, but at the same time, there's a there's a second company that is part of that piece, which is still going, called Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, and we had met one of the characters who was at the start of this prior to prior to me getting the assignment, um, and he was this kind of gregarious Italian former rapper and music TV presenter who had made some money in kind of the initial dot-com boom in Italy and then had moved to... Um, had a stint presenting on MTV, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say that it's definitely MTV, but an Italian equivalent yeah. of MTV, certainly. Um, and he had gone to LA and, and was now one of these characters um, setting up a Hyperloop, and he's kind of this gregarious... Or you, he's almost larger than life. You know, you can't... He has this insane kind of Tony Stark beard and this huge hair, and his name is Bebop. It's not his actual name. His actual <laughs> name is Gabrielle, but... Um, you know, just one of these characters, and you think, "Oh God, th- I mean, this character is going to be amazing, mm. no matter what happens." Um, but yeah, without spoiling the story, that company and that individual turned out to be not exactly what they seemed to be. Yeah, um, and it was a great, it was an interesting story to report because the Hyperloop. I, th- I think a lot of technology reporting. So when Wired started, and certainly the US Wired was was one of the first kind of tech magazines. Um, doing this kind of reporting out there and, and it's when been did, around for decades. When did it start? So, um, you have to... I mean, the, the the American edition has certainly been running since the 90s. Yeah. The UK edition, its current form, I think has been around since 2009. Okay. Um, but it's one of these things... So, so there, were, there were elements of that story where companies would make these announcements and then I would and everyone would kind of faithfully report them like literally every you know every tech publication every mm. major newspaper in, in the world would go and make them an announcement and then I would go and do the due diligence and it would turn out to be not true yeah um, you know f- I, I remember ringing the um, I, I, I rung the planning permission for this this um, little uh, it's, I guess it's not a state but um, this region in California where this company had said that they had planning permission to build this Hyperloop that was going to be up and running by 2018, which seemed like a ludicrous proposition at the time. And I remember calling them up and them saying, oh, actually, they don't. They haven't even finished filing their application. And yet you had all these stories on The Guardian and elsewhere saying that this, you know, parroting this as if it was fact. Yeah. And it really kind of shone a light on some of the problems that exist in tech reporting with people over-relying on the word of publicists and trying to compete for speed online rather than doing the due diligence. Um, well, I thought in the lead of that story where you're talking about a, a dem- attempted demonstration of the technology in yeah. the desert, and the piece makes clear that the machine has failed backstage, and yeah. that then they, they do a sort of bodge fix and it goes halfway. How did you go about piecing that together? What had actually happened? Uh, so, I mean, the fact that it was bodged, they, I managed to kind of get them to the, the company to talk about on the record okay. afterwards because I think they had felt okay we got away with it we can kind of talk about this and like as, as a laugh and a joke mm-hmm. um, but it was kind of one of those things where the metaphor 
it kind of spoke more largely about what the story was really about, which is really this this kind of the reality of hyperbole for investors. I think the print he- headline was Hyper Machine or something like that. Yeah. And it's really about showmanship and to what extent these big tech ideas are actually real. It's about people, ultimately. As well. oh, oh, totally. Um, but I mean, it, it was an absolutely fantastic and fascinating story to report. It had all of these, you know, the legal reporting elements. It has the technology to explain. Um, and it has one of my favorite endings of any story that I stories that I did, which is um, Bebop did a magic trick at the end of our conversation, <laughs> um, which just seemed to me to be like the perfect yeah, summation it's a, it's of, a gift, of right? uh, exactly. You kind of you can't can't wish for those moments. And the second one of, of, of your pieces, we'll move on to editing in a moment, is the, sure. the post Ebola story that you did. So yeah. could you talk me through, um, give a kind of brief process of what it's about? Again, we'll put it in in the notes um, and what what the process of reporting that was like. Sure. So the post Ebola story, um, and my my memory fails me as to when exactly when I reported that. I guess it was January sixteen. Oh, was it that late? I think so. Okay. I was looking at. It. Um, so, I had become aware of this phenomenon. So the, the Ebola um, outbreak of twenty fourteen ish, which had kind of burned through Africa for for the following months, um, was by far the largest outbreak of Ebola ever by by many many hundred I mean I think previously there had been something been like, like 400 and there were yeah ever 28,000 yeah exactly yeah. right so um and you know Ebola had been really widely covered um but then there was a couple of incidents in the news so there was an American doctor who'd kind of come back from um from Sierra Leone um who had had this weird thing go on where they found Ebola still living in his eye mm. and he'd kind of gone blind and one's eye, his eye had changed colour. He changed colour, yeah. And there was a little, um, there was like a little kind of 600 word news piece or something like that in the New York Times about it and I thought, oh, that's weird. Um, and then something that UK readers may remember, there was the British, uh, the Scottish nurse Pauline Caffaki, um, mm. who had a similar relapse case here in the UK. Um, she had been out working for, I believe, a Christian charity um, in West Africa at the time and then had come back and suddenly weeks or months later had had this very serious illness um we later found out that they that they again she had live virus still in her system um and this was something that was t- entirely new to science because fundamentally there just had not been enough people around for us to observe that this could be possible with Ebola because historically speaking Ebola had a 90 plus mortality rate yeah it killed every you know it killed everyone and if you've read Richard Preston's book the hot zone which is the the, the famous um book about Ebola from, from and the other 90s. and other viruses I think uh yeah, yeah I mean it's it's primarily about um Marburg Ebola and, and yeah Marburg and uh, some some related viruses but um so but the actually it kind of it was one of those things where it interested me that it was such a well-known subject and yet the science around it was actually really thin mm. because of this fundamental thing of everyone dies you just don't have the caseload to be able to understand what's happening and now all of a sudden you have these people coming and saying you know many months later um they're having these illnesses um and this was this was actually mimicked by some cases in um in Liberia and in Sierra Leone where there were these kind of isolated reports of many months later people just up and dying or having heart attacks or various other different things that people were attributing to the virus and there was no scientific you know there was no scientific consensus as to whether this was real or not but i very quickly realized that something was going on and that it was something that very few people understood or was being reported on. So I went to um, Liberia for just over a week, um, which, again, if you say January 2016, it must have been around there. Yeah. Um, it's quite a short to, trip. I, I mean, suppose for the so one end of it, there's, there's other reporting. Yeah, there's, well. there's quite a lot of other reporting um, around it. Um, 
we're, to do a, a the US um, has an organization called the National Institutes of Health that was mm-hmm. doing one of the largest ever post Ebola kind of studies. Um, so I went and, and shadowed some doctors down. I in in to, JFK Hospital. Yeah, exactly in Monrovia. And I and I I I, um, I cause I used to work in that region. I uh, I went to an accident in Liberia and cut the the artery in my wrist and had oh, to go God. and get stitched up at JFK Hospital. Which was it still? What was what was it like? Well, then? at the time they told me it was also known as just for killing. So <laughs> yeah, and sounds like, and sounds, when I went yeah. back to get the stitches taken out, there was a cadaver lying under a bin liner outside yeah. so yeah it was but in, in fairness to them actually they did a very good job and everything came fresh from packets needles wise mm-hmm. and all of that so um but yeah west african hospitals are not my favorite places i mean you saw some of the statistics coming out of that outbreak where you would have kind of seven doctors in the entire country and suddenly you were dealing with this enormous number of fatalities mm-hmm. enormous case load i mean it, it, it's genuinely the the underfunding of um of medical institutions in in west africa is is an absolute travesty um, but I mean, it was absolutely heartbreaking because I interviewed dozens and dozens of survivors, um, both through the study and elsewhere, about their experiences. And it was, you know, you know what it's like when you go to to, to report these kind of mm-hmm. stories um, when people have been through extreme stress and loss, and many people had lost their entire family, they'd lost their kids. Um, there are Ebola orphanages where there just you know hundreds and in some cases thousands of children who've lost their parents. Um, so it was it was tough to report, but I mean, pretty it was pretty overwhelmingly obvious that post Ebola syndrome was evidently this this huge problem that people weren't talking about. Weren't and what aware, what kind of feedback of. did you get after the piece ran? Um, well, the, the, after the piece ran, it was actually quite gratifying for us because um, although it didn't get as much traffic as I think we'd hoped online, I think primarily because there was just a little bit of exhaustion about you know Ebola and Ebola coverage it's always kind of slightly depressing to me that you know I turn up in town and not like you know none of the journalists are left there's like one stringer for the AP or something who's still in town because even though there were still live cases and even though all of this story no one was reporting it because everyone had kind of left because it was no longer the flavor of the month um but it got passed around the National Institutes of Health and I got some nice notes from people at the WHO and it did seem to you know even if it necessarily didn't make everyone aware of it it's certainly, you know, one of the things that that but the great science reporting and great healthcare reporting can do is that it can make people aware of this issue and help scientists secure further grants and you know such help change the scientific conversation around it um, and the conversations with N- with NGOs, you know, so that people like MSF can go and say, look, this is a real problem. Yeah, um, I'm interested in um, in method actually with some of these pieces, mm. and obviously because you know we're both doing similar kind of work here. What's your view on transcription and things like that? On you know my my view on this, which is. I never used to use, when I was doing certainly wire journalism in Africa and so forth, I never used dictaphones, found it too cumbersome, it took too long. But I think that they are a crucial method for magazine writing because you get voice and, and particularly you get dialogue. But I find that, um, and I, I, you know, I once had a conversation with Sam Knight, who we mentioned earlier, who said his view is you should transcribe everything and that while you're doing that, there's some kind of osmosis that takes place and, and how the piece should fit together forms your mind. But I find that's just unfeasible time-wise. And, you know, I'm not in a position where I can hire a sort of urchin to do my transcription. So my method now is I'll do all the reporting. I'll then put all the audio on my phone and then just listen to it as I go about my business for like a week, um, which I find has the similar kind of churn function sure. without being as tight. And then, you know, you can go back and, and pull particular pieces and stuff like that. But how do you handle that piece? Um, 
with great trepidation and fear. I think everyone hates transcribing, especially as someone who hates their voice as much as I do. Um, but um, well, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I always like to say I've got a face for uh, radio and a voice for print, uh, so I'm, I've found the right line of work. Um, but in terms of transcription, I do transcribe absolutely everything. Really? Um, I use two voice recorders for every interview in case one fails. Uh, we've all been there. and We've all been um, there. I think I was, I was once admonished by, um, by, I think it was David Attenborough for only using one. Um, and ever since then, you know, when you get told off for doing it, and also, you know, we've all been through those scenarios where the where the dictaphone fails, so you've always got to have a backup. The dictaphone voodoo. Different. I think everyone, every journalist oh, has had that. I just had one actually, literally last week, where I'd had a, a conversation for a story that I'm working on at the moment, and I'd miss. Um, I, I, it has kind of some noise cancelling functions, which I'd just not done, and it's one of those things where we're in a restaurant, and all I can hear is the there's the woman like sitting behind me talking over everything that the person's saying. It's just heartbreaking. Thankfully, I take notes as well, mm. like pretty pretty thorough notes throughout the conversation, so I was able to piece it together. Um, but it, it does terrify me. Um, with transcribing, I think there's a matter of resources. So here, sometimes if I'm working on a huge story and there's, you know, for, so for all for the Ebola case, you know, I must have interviewed 50 plus people for that mm. easily. Um, so not everything was from there was transcribed for Hyperloop. You know, generally speaking, for a story of three or four thousand words, I'd expect to talk to thirty people yeah. or something like that. If it's something that's as that complex, if it's a profile of someone, then it's obviously nowhere near. But um, you know, the, I, I, with with those cases, it's it's totally unfeasible to do everything. So we can use transcription services. The problem is that you don't get that churn that you mentioned. I think the churn uh, is the key. Yeah, the key it, thing. it is, and quite often, to be honest, the quality isn't good. You know, I think you've. Well, I think we've maybe talked about me railing on Twitter about the poor quality of transcription services. So my advice to everyone is just suck it up and do it because you'll always find that golden quote that you'd forgotten they said, or you were thinking about your next question, hmm. and it will kind of turn the piece around. So always transcribe your, yourself. Um, and, and I mean, yeah, it's interesting for my book because I'm now taking first draft to to polish now um i'm i'm doing this thing of putting in the audio because again for this i've you know i've done 150 interviews or something it's just mm. not feasible for that um and and for this i uh again i did my thing of putting it on my phone and listening to it and it's been like the world's longest podcast about the <laughs> initial invasion of iraq and then noting stuff down just just using a note function on my phone but again i think this kind of this kind of workflow stuff is so interesting because no one really teaches you it sure. and you have to work out what's germane to you. Um, I'm conscious of time, so we should, we should wrap this fairly quickly. But just talking um, about a couple of your, the pieces that you edited, um, this sure. one about death. Could, we, oh, yeah. could you talk a bit about your, your process as editor, maybe using that, that piece as, <laughs> as an example? Uh, I'd be interested to know if Hayley Campbell, who wrote the story, is, is, uh, is listening because this is a kind of a funny story uh, editing-wise. Um, Hayley Campbell is a British writer... Uh, she's not actually British, I think she's Australian, but she's, you know, uh, UK-based um, and a fantastic writer. And when I um, moved to take over the features well at Wired, um, you know, I, I kind of drew up a list of all of these these people that I wanted to work with, and, and she was certainly high up there. And uh, we had a conversation, and she said, you know, I'm interested in writing about death, the future of death. She'd had a conversation with a mortician um, who'd, who'd mentioned that, Dissolving bodies uh, in the future, you won't be cremated. Your bodies will be dissolved during this process called alkaline hydrolysis. Um, and I said, "Great, that's you know, that's a story for us." Um, there was obviously a, there's a bit of due diligence in building out the pitch properly and working out. I was Did she have a track of doing this kind of piece? She was a staff features writer at BuzzFeed um, here and wrote, and wrote some fantastic features for them. I know that she's done features for Empire and and mm. some of the weekend magazines and things. Um, it was her first feature for Wired, certainly. But she, you know, Haley was was very domain as to how the process works. Um, 
and and how does that process work from from that? from where you sit in the editor's seat in terms of pitching and yeah pitching. maybe just just what are you let's take it through sequentially so sure. from from pitch what are you what are your sort of do's and don'ts on on that um so helpfully i actually wrote a medium post about this so if you kind of check out my twitter i think i've linked it uh, we'll, we'll link, put that in the notes as well but um i don't have a hard and fast rule with pitching but generally i i that the biggest issue that we have with Wired is people pitching ideas rather than the stories. And sure. when I talk about that, I mean, I want to write about how Bitcoin is going to change insurance or something boring like that. Or I want to I want to write about how gene editing is going to change farming or something like that. Mm. Um, that's the subject. It's not story. What story is, on the 12th of September, 1984, Joe Bloggs, like, Turned up murdered in his house, and you know, you know, you know, like it's it's an anecdotal lead. It's mm. it's, it's what we recognise. And my number one pitch to my, my my number one pitch tip to people is write the pitch like you're writing the story. Okay, have the first line of the pitch. You know, you've got to grab me in the same way that you've got to grab the reader. Um, other than that, be aware of Wired and what we're kind of looking for. Have an idea of structure. Don't just think here's one individual character. Have a think about a narrative arc. I was talk like I talk a lot with writers about, and quite often when I'm editing them, I'll literally physically draw the uh, the, the arc on the page. Mm. You know, you've got to think about okay, what's the instigation? What's the rising action? What's the complication? What's your resolution? Think about how you're going to end. You've got to think about some of these structural things before you. And it's, it's difficult before you've done the reporting mm. because sometimes you know, like in the Hyperloop case, everything goes sideways, but for a brilliant way. But I just want to see that your mind understands you know I, I want to see that you're experienced enough to understand those concepts and what we're looking for because I don't want to get us down the road um, to the point where you're filing a draft and you know you don't understand structures and, um, and what kind of volume of things. pitches and, and so forth are you getting very f- well I think more I think fewer than people would expect yeah. um, in terms of good pitches I maybe get a handful a month um, really? I get a lot of bad pitches yeah in terms of commissionable pitches I maybe get two or three. A month and then what, this, what's yeah. the process internally if you have an idea and this I suppose applies to you doing your own stories as well if you mm. want to do a piece if you want to do a piece yourself who do you have to sell it to and if you want to commission a piece do you have to run that by mm. the the top top management of the magazine yeah I should I should just qualify what I just said actually by saying that obviously because I co-edit with Joao Joao's also getting pictures so mm. that's not the total volume that we would get um, but uh, yeah generally speaking if we get a pitch through I will have a work. I'll work a little bit with the writer to get it into a form where I think that Greg uh, Williams, our editor in chief, is ready to look at it, and then I'll bump it up to him. Um, we have a discussion with the managing editor as to whether we can afford it if there's you know, foreign reporting involved or mm. what have you, or if, if there's fixes and things attached. Um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, th- we're not we're not a huge uh, a huge staff, and you've got to think about is there a time relevant hook for this, so it's got to go in this issue, and therefore how are we going to balance the well? But I mean, I think it's fairly straightforward as the similar. You know, pretty much every monthly. And then going through the the back and forth with the writer themselves. Um, well, I mean, what 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 are your what are your classic bugbears or things that you kind of advice for people? Um, so, I mean, the 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 classic bugbears are some of the things I talked about with structure. Mm. You know, you'd be surprised the number of writers who are otherwise professional and file a five thousand word story without a single line break. Mm. Um, or you know, and when you say it, line break, and they'll say, "What's a line break?" And maybe that's a, a, a a functional reality of people writing. What online. is a line break? A line break is the uh, is the is the change of scenes normally denoted by a large, like a double power break mm. and then a drop cap in a in a print layout or, or online. Online, I guess that's how I describe it. Um, but it's things like the lead. You know, 
have the have a sense of drama at the beginning have a character that we can relate show don't tell is the obvious one but it's so important and i think there's particularly with with uk um newspaper writing a lot of profiles say oh this person did this Mm. coquettishly or something like that and it's just like you don't you don't need that because if you can show me a coquettish you know by the way i i I would love to see a physical description of what coquettish actually is i like i I would love to have a picture of that in my mind just just show us the Mm. actions you know the 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 number one the like the dream of any kind of the story is dialogue where you don't even have to say what's going on because you can just leave it to the other characters and with a dick's phone dialogue is so easy in some yeah. ways because you it's like a play um final question what are your own aspirations both with your your writing and your editing where you'd like to go <laughs> um well i think we all dream about writing long stories for the new yorker or what have you mm. um i wish i had time to think of an idea for a book proposal or you know, talk with agents and things. But uh, at the moment, though, with a newborn baby and and lots to do, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. But um, I'm working on a couple of really uh, fun stories at the moment, so I'm kind of keep churning those out and hopefully adding to our rosters of uh, of great British long form writers. So if you're out there and listening and interested in coming to have a coffee or you know picking up an issue and sending us some ideas, then I'd love to hear from you. That's great. Thanks so much, Lee. Thanks. Hello, it's us again with a swift update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to? Uh, <laughs> on one front, it's going to be rather depressing. So I'm in the, the final uh, few months of uh, writing uh, my book. So it's getting to the stage where it's, it's definitely more of a, a limping crawl. Um, <laughs> on, on bloodied stumps. <laughs> yeah, than a, than, a, than a jaunty stroll. Uh, so, so that's not so good. However... Um, very excitingly, I'm about four days out from the US publication of The Secret Lives of Colour, No You, whoop, whoop. Uh, which I'm very excited about, but also means that I'm doing sort of the, the glamorous publicity stuff. Um, and, you know, that's really exciting and, and fun and, and uh, means that I'm having to reread my own stuff. because It's been quite a while since the UK publication, so I've forgotten a lot of the, the very interesting things that I apparently said. How about you? Uh, I am having a discussion with my book editor about timings this week. It's like being called to the headmaster's study. Sounds ominous. Yeah, it is quite ominous. Um, But I've also been commissioned to write another big magazine feature about which I can disclose nothing until I've spoken to my editor later this week. But uh, that should be good. Uh, And yeah, otherwise continuing the sort of grinding, brutal toil of (laughs) trying to finish a book. Oh, we'll go through that stage. Just say say how it is. Anyway, (laughs) this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Acom. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Olivia Krellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Our social media editor is Zara Hankir. And graphic design is by James Edgar. And you can find us on all manner of social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And please, please, please do leave us a review on iTunes. We say this every time. And I know that a lot of you have um, tried and some of you have found it quite difficult, apparently. We don't know why that is, (laughs) technical difficulties. But keep on trying because it really helps. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye.